welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Travis Parigi, CEO and president, founder at Liquid Frameworks. Travis is an entrepreneur with more than 25 years experience in leadership and technology who's passionate about creating cloud computing software solutions business problems primarily found within the energy industry. Does that sum it up nicely, Travis? I grabbed that from LinkedIn, man. Hopefully that works. <laughs> that does. That sums it up quite nicely. I appreciate that intro. Thanks a bunch, Justin. I look forward to talking to you this morning and really thanks for having me. Yeah, excellent. No, I'm looking forward to it too. And you know, it's funny when I saw 25 years, I almost had to squint and say, are you sure that's not 15? Because whatever you're doing, you're aging well, sir. I mean, for all the listeners out there, <laughs> you, you can't see Travis, but he looks like he might have graduated from grad school and he's got 25 years of experience. So I don't know, whatever you're doing, man, it works. But you mentioned you've been to Canada several times. So maybe it's that Canadian, that crisp Canadian air that you've, 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 it could be, it could be. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. And you know, I'm always interested to have entrepreneurs on the show because they're a bit of a different breed and you guys come along with a great story. And so You know, the first introduction I had to entrepreneurship was my dad. He was a purebred entrepreneur. He was the type that would, he would go to a gas station and convince someone to sell him his car that he could buy for, you know, less than what it was worth and then flip it the next day. And so I saw him work that kind of magic. You know, he owned his own businesses and stuff like that. But entrepreneurship, it's an exciting ride, lots of ups and downs, you know. So when you, when you had that in your introduction, I thought, okay, this, this ought to be a good conversation. But definitely want to give a big shout out to Jacqueline from Blast Media. She's actually the one who connected us. So again, I'm not sure exactly what they do, but they helped connect us. So good job on that. And it sounds like you've been working for them for a while and seems to be working out. So that's good. Yeah, they've been doing some work for us for almost two years now and been engaged with Jacqueline over there. And they've been helping us get in contact with great podcasts like what you're doing here, Justin. So yeah, it's a good shout out for Blast Media and Jacqueline. Most definitely, Travis. So Travis, we got going a little bit before we pressed record and and I'm excited to keep going here on your journey. But more specifically, where are you from originally? Yes, yeah, so I'm originally from, from Beaumont, Texas. Grew up in Beaumont, went to high school through there, and then ended up at A&M and graduated in 94 with a computer engineering degree. Nice. nice. So what, so Beaumont, you know, for me, it's always, it's one of those drive-through cities because I live in Katy <laughs> here in Houston. And it's always one of those where it's, it's almost like a milestone when I'm going to Louisiana, which is where my, my in-laws families are from. And so I've been there, we used to work offshore. So I've probably driven through Beaumont about a thousand times. One of my buddies actually competed in bodybuilding. And so I went there once actually, actually got off I-10 for the first time in my life to yeah. get into Beaumont. And it was kind of a neat little, little city, but uh, I mean, tell me, and the only other person I know from Beaumont is a, a lady that used to work with me for in, my, in our marketing department, but 
I mean, do you enjoy Beaumont? Is that somewhere where you would like raise a family or is it kind of just like a working city or like, what is it like growing up there or yeah. being there? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I've actually never had that question interview. I think it's a great question. So I enjoyed it. I had a great time growing up there. It is an oil and gas town, if you will. I mean, you've got a lot of the refineries right there on the outside of town. So there's a heavy oil and gas presence there. My dad, mom, my parents weren't involved in that side of the business. My dad was an entrepreneur, similar to what you're talking about with your dad. But okay. I enjoyed growing up there. I mean, it's a small town. It's it's not one of those towns where you can get away with much. So if I ever fell out of line, my parents quickly found out about it. But <laughs> yeah. it was a good place to grow up. Great for family. I got a ton of family over there still. A really big family. So I really enjoyed it. Went to a small high school there. Go back and visit as much as I can, for sure. No kidding. So what you said your dad was an entrepreneur. What, what kind of work did he do? Yeah. So my dad, my dad had a business. He was actually in the liquor business for, I guess, I don't know, 25, 30 years. So he had a retail store as long with a wholesale distribution business. And that's actually, that was actually my first customer. One of my first customers was his wholesale distribution business. Yeah. It's kind of how I got into software development for commercial businesses. Super fun. Yeah. So does he still, is he still in that business or? No. So he sold it. He's retired now. He's retired, sold it, I guess about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. But interestingly enough, the software that I wrote for his business back in 1986, 87 timeframe is still being used today. It's the longest running software product that I've ever written, obviously, in the history of my life, but it's, no kidding. it's still chugging along. Yeah, I wrote it in a, a language that probably most of the listeners wouldn't even have heard of. It's so old, <laughs> but it's still <laughs> out there cranking away. And the funny thing is the end user base, I talk to them every now and then, and they say they, they still just absolutely love it. And no they've looked kidding. at other yeah newer stuff. They don't want to change. It's, it's pretty funny. So, I mean, is that like mailbox money for you then? That's pretty cool. Oh, gosh. No, I wish it was. No, so that was a deal where when I wrote that software back in the late 80s, I wrote it and I was at the time, I mean, I was super young. I couldn't even drive. You know, my mom would, would drive me down there and, and I would work on site there coding wow. and then go home. I mean, I was super young. So you know, he, he paid me something, but this was back in the day of quote unquote perpetual license, I guess is what I would think of it as where yeah, he paid me obviously, but no, there's yeah. no mailbox money <laughs> going on there. That would be awesome. I, I didn't have the foresight to sign a software subscription agreement back <laughs> then in the late eighties. I don't Man. even think they existed. <laughs> no kidding. So how I'm curious. So I, I was born in 86. That shows how young, or I guess maybe how old I am to some of the listeners, but back then, I mean, what did you because computers were not much yeah. of a thing. Like explain the logistics behind that. Cause now you get on a I laptop know. and you, and you do code and I'm an operations guy. So when, so excuse my ignorance talking about this kind of stuff, but like how in the heck did you write pro do that without like modern day computer stuff? That's right. So that's a good question. So I guess, I don't know, 83 timeframe. My mom got me a Commodore 64, 64 for Christmas. And I knew I wanted a computer. I didn't really know why, and I just asked for one and that's what I got for Christmas. And I was just beyond elated that I got it. And yeah. I literally grabbed the book that morning and the next day and read the book on basic programming, taught myself how to program and just became literally obsessed with it. I mean, just OCD obsessed, just fell in love with it. It was just fascinating to me to be able to feed some instructions to a machine and make that machine do what I wanted it to do. I mean, the control over the machine was 
it was it was really really fascinating to me. So I, I figured out how to do basic programming and, and wrote some software in that. And then a few years later, got into Pascal and really figured out how databases worked and how indexing worked and and started writing software with with Pascal. And then I was always working for my dad's business on the retail liquor side. I mean, I was a stock boy for years as a little kid and yeah. did that kind of stuff. I would take out the trash. I mean, so so. I would see how his business operated from the retail side, but I also worked on the wholesale side and I would see how they would do delivery tickets and how they would track their pricing and how they would do all their invoicing. And, and I would see that process every day and it was real paper-based. And so they would literally write down the orders on a bag, on a brown paper bag. And so I watched that and thought, man, I bet I could write something for that. And so I just started writing some software for it and started showing it to them. And, it just caught on and it became quite popular. And that's literally what they switched over to and started using. What a cool story. That's wild. I didn't know back then that was even a thing. But so, I mean, you've obviously seen the evolution of data science and now it being like the most trendiest, popular, most probably demanding ecosystem, if you will, out there, and especially in oil and gas. What's like just pure observation, like, being someone who started like pretty much legacy data science when before data science became even cool. Cause now it's, I mean, pretty popular and it's high demand, but like what's like your biggest observation and, and where it was back then to where it is now to where you see it going. Cause I mean, you've seen the full swing of this thing. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I would say the most massive thing would have to be just computational computing power, computational horsepower. Yeah. being able to process that much data, but at the same time, the storage of data on such a massive scale. I mean, back then in the 80s, I mean, if I could show you the equipment that I was working on, you, I mean, it's laughable at this stage, but the ability to store massive amounts of data and process it at such incredible speeds has come so far over the last 20, 30 years that it's really what has enabled all the machine learning and all the AI. I mean, that stuff has been around for several generations. I mean, we've had artificial intelligence systems for, I guess, back in the 60s. But what's different now is that it's available to the masses. And when I say the masses, I mean the mass developer community. And it's available at a price point that is just a mere fraction of what it used to be a long time ago. And so you've got the ability for really any developer. I mean, if you wanted to go and stand up a machine that that housed a tremendous amount of data and apply a tremendous amount of computational horsepower and run linear regression algorithms against it and all sorts of different machine learning algorithms. I and mean, you could go do that and you could do it for relatively cheap. That would have been something back in the 80s that, I mean, you, you couldn't even have dreamed of doing something like that unless you were a huge corporation or government and just had massive budgets at your disposal. So yeah, you know, that's been a huge change. Speed to value is also another big change. I mean, now you can go to Amazon Web Services and pick up things, quote unquote, off the shelf components that do things that historically you would have had to literally write from scratch from the ground up. And so mm. that's just so much faster for the development team to get things out the door. I mean, things as basic as authentication. Like now you can go grab authentication from Amazon and just boom, be up and running with a super secure, fully integrated authentication page with, it could be LinkedIn, it could be Google authentication, it could be just regular old username and password. I mean, 
the speed of value is, is tremendous when you look at the componentization that's taken place with things like AWS, for sure. Wow, that's fascinating. My brother-in-law is actually, he's big into you know coding and, and sort of the data science type stuff. And he's finishing his degree because he started off as doing it as a hobby, but now he now he's actually formally going to school for at the University of Houston here. But yeah, he kind of tells me the ins and outs. And similarly to you, he was he's he was self-taught. I mean, he just was always interested in that side of just interested in that kind of stuff. And so he taught himself how to, you know, create his own web pages and he actually made his own app. And so it's but like it's totally like a different I don't get it. And while I'm sure, you know, if I spend enough time researching and, and trying to teach myself it, but it's fascinating what you can do with a bunch of random gibberish on a computer screen. I think that was the hook for me. Yeah. <laughs> that was the hook for me. Just, I mean, if you put the right quote unquote code in there, you, you could get it to do kind of anything you wanted to. Uh, I'm a bit of a control freak. So that was very appealing to me. Good <laughs> to be for able you. To do that for sure. But you could learn it, man. There's so many resources out there these days. You, you could learn it. I mean, people do. Hey, you know, and at one point in my life, I would probably take it on just for, for giggles. But right now between grad school, career, podcasting, two kids, I barely have time to breathe, let alone learn coding. Totally. So I'll leave I, that up to the I, professionals. I get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it is interesting. And actually I grew up, I really was always interested in computers and I was very fortunate growing up. My parents, you know, we could afford the old school, you know, computer with dial up and I always remember just, it was almost like you could just keep clicking and finding out more information. And while I never did code type stuff, I remember somehow getting it. So GTA, like the original GTA, you could get on your computer and I could figure out, my buddy showed me how, but I could get in there and code something to where like it would be a, a cheat code, right? And I always thought that was the neatest thing. And now that's obviously on a super small scale, but it definitely sparked interest. And so maybe one day I'll get back into it. And actually my buddy up in Denver, Matthew Bowers, he's in G he's a geologist, but he's very big into like coding and Python, that stuff. Again, very ignorant to it, but he does a lot of online stuff, seminars and stuff, teaching geologists, Python and different coding and applications. And so you're right. The, the resources are out there for pretty much any average person. And then of course you have, magical Google and YouTube that you could learn anything. So oh, yeah. I would imagine the rate at which people are understanding it and, and applying it are just helping the whole progression take off and continue to evolve, which is we're going through an interesting time right now. And so I'd imagine you're probably sitting back saying, wow, this is funny because I was doing this 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no doubt. It is an interesting time right now, but there are a lot of resources out there and the components that are available make it so that you don't necessarily have to write at such a deep level that you may have used to. And you're starting so much further down the field in a lot of cases. And so you get a lot of those endorphins and satisfaction of seeing the results of your work quickly, as opposed to having to start from such a low level like you used to have to do. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. So let's keep going here then. I mean, I'm interested, obviously, with someone with your experience and, and years of doing this stuff, you've probably created something extremely valuable. You have a company which, well, so out of college, did you start your own company right away or, or what was the transition post-college? What did that look like? I did not. So once I got out of college, once I got out of a and I had a computer engineering degree and I went to work for 
software consulting company called BSG. And BSG was a company that was started by some old Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture people. And we were building client server applications. So thick client connecting to a relational database, something like Sybase was a popular one. Oracle, I was doing a lot of Oracle stuff. So we were writing client server applications and this was in 1995 and I loved it. It was awesome. Did a lot of travel with them all over the place. Did a lot of work in the energy space, a lot of work on the operator side, writing things like AFE reporting systems. And then after, I guess, after a couple of years, you started to see more and more of the dot-com industry come into vogue and they started getting traction. You had all these companies getting funded, I mean, significant amounts of funding and building these really cool web-based systems. And so in the late 90s, I ended up going to work for a company called Emerging that was funded by Benchmark Capital and Austin Ventures. And we were focused on building dot-com products for dot-com. So we were building web technology. This was all super new at the time and really, really just, just focused heavy, heavy on the web side of things and learned that side of the technology. And when 2000 came, as you probably recall, things didn't go so well for the dot-com industry. It ended up collapsing. And we were in a situation where all of our customers were dot-coms. And so we saw all, all of our customers literally going out of business 90% of the time. And so we shifted our focus as a consulting firm. We shifted our focus over to selling to large global 2000 companies. And one of them that we ended up selling to was Schlumberger. And so I ended up being the senior manager on that project. Well, while we did shift our focus at that time, it just wasn't fast enough. So the firm that I was working for actually ended up being a casualty of the dot-com industry collapse. But Schlumberger still needed that product built. They still needed this wireline configuration product that they they wanted to have built. So they were going to build this great wireline configurator that would not only configure it, but all the job, but also price it according to the customer's contract. And so I went to him and just said, hey, I know that you guys still need this piece of software built. And me and these four or five guys, we still need a job. So <laughs> yeah. could I start this new consulting company and we'll charge you less money and we'll still deliver this great product. We'll do it faster, better, cheaper. And to my surprise, they said yes. And, and that's how the, the business got started, really. Oh, now, that no. was a consulting business. I mean, yeah. yeah. And so we were consulting business before we started the software company. Was that Exa Consulting? Is that right? That's right. Correct. Okay. That's right. So did you, right. were you able to, obviously you were focused on Slumber Jane delivering, you know, obviously what you had promised. Did you diversify from that or, or what, what happened leading into, because that was about, I mean, heck, you had that for about 20 years. So I'd imagine you did other projects along That's the way. Right. We did. We did. So we had other customers beyond Slumberjay. Not a whole ton. Slumberjay was certainly the lion's share of the business there, but we had customers like McDermott Energy and we had some other smaller service providers as well as some non-oil field service provider companies in the financial space. And so we, we did diversify to some extent, but I was just beyond fascinated with the oil field. It was really the first time, I mean, I'd done work for operators in the past, but it was the first time I got really, really deep into oil field technology and really got a huge, huge education around wireline and then cementation and then artificial lifts and really figured out how that stuff worked. It was just blown away by the technology that they send down the hole and what they were able to do with these tools and the data that they could get back. It just, I couldn't believe how cool, amazing these things were. And so yeah. I just got super into it and really just focused primarily 
on those types of companies for a while before starting Liquid Frameworks, the software company that we have now today. Yeah. And, and so interesting, I mean, as a consulting company of 20, almost, well, almost 20 years, 19, 19 years in a bit. I mean, what made you decide to finally just say, you know what, I'm going to start a new company? Mm-hmm. You know, because at that time, I would imagine you had built, you know, reputation, kind of, you know, people knew the brand, the company to then switch to, I mean, obviously looking at Exa Consulting and then Liquid Frameworks from the outside, you would never know the two were connected unless you were talking to someone within you know, the company. What made you decide to break off and then almost restart or kind of build on top of Exa? Right. It's a great question. So I knew for a long time, ever since writing my, my dad's software product way back when, that I always wanted to start a software company, a true software company that made a product that I could solve a real problem or a real set of problems, walk into a potential prospect and say, these are the problems I can solve. I can do it with this product. Is it something that you're interested in? And do you have these problems? So let's let's get it in place and let's deliver value. So I always knew I wanted to build a software product. I just didn't know what the product would do or the problem that it would solve. And it wasn't really until I got deeper into my consulting company for about four or five years that I figured out that, oh, out in the oil field in the, at the actual well site, there's this huge paper-based process that takes place and it's really inefficient. It has a significantly negative impact on cash flow, and I can probably write some software to solve that. So I just knew I wanted to start a software company for a long time. And, and for me, making that shift from consulting to software just seemed like a lifelong goal that I'd always wanted to do. And okay. it's worth noting, I mean, that those two companies ran in parallel for some period of time. And that's really how I was able to finance Liquid Frameworks, the software company in the early stages of 2005, 2006, 2007, was taking profits from the consulting company, really taking all the profits and just pouring it all into the software company. I mean, I I took the, if you build it, they will come mentality and Ah. just built this massive you know, the first version was, it's not as big as it is. It wasn't as big as it is now today, but we just, I just built this, this big thing for a couple of years and just sort of crossed my fingers and knew that people would buy it if it was good. And and we got traction, but it took some time. <laughs> yeah. So, so would you say like looking back, sort of the approach, if you build it, they will come. Was that, was that the right strategy or would you have done it different? <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it was the right strategy, I would say, because I was lucky enough to have the finances on the on the consulting side that was able that were able to fund the development effort. And I just so much of it was that I literally just loved to code software. Like I just there's something in me that just I don't know what it is, but it just drives me to really enjoy seeing the computer do what I want to do. So it was also an outlet. Like it was an opportunity Ah, for me just to go exercise this passion and do it in the context of solving a real problem. So for me, it was the right choice. I know a lot of people don't do it like that. If I had to do it over again, I probably would go out and get a couple of early customers and have them help lead the requirements because I feel like we did do a lot of wandering around the desert for a little while after we got the first version out <laughs> yeah. trying to get the requirements right. I got gotcha. you. You know, one thing I think that's important to note is the fact that you were passionate about it. And someone who's an entrepreneur, if you can 
if you can use, like you said, use it as an outlet and not look at it as a job. And I mean, while yeah. obviously you're doing it for money, you are doing it for the pure enjoyment of it. It makes it that much more digestible to, to grind it out. And I mean, if you, you know, if you're, if you're married to your passion, the byproduct will eventually become monetary. And, and so it's, it sounds like that's what it's done. I mean, you've been in business now for years. So, you know, and I checked your website, it's, you know, you've got a ton of different services and, and again, for someone who's not familiar with that space, it, it was kind of like information overload, but I mean, you got things like ticketing and EAM and invoicing and self-service forms, analytics. So it seems like you got a pretty wide range of, of offerings, but how would you sum it up and, and what is it that, you know, where does the rubber meet the road and, and how are you really adding value to the ecosystem? Right. Yeah. So if I was going to sum it up in kind of the, the elevator summary, pitch summary, I would say that Liquid Frameworks provides the FieldFX product suite. And the FieldFX product suite is a software as a service model that provides support for field service management operations in the context of really quote to cash. So all the different workflows involved in quote to cash field effects can provide support for. And that really starts with modeling the price book. Then that price book could be complex in nature. It's the price book between the service provider and the operator or the oil company. And then it moves to quoting. So building complex quotes and configuring those quotes, pricing them accordingly, converting quotes to jobs that then get scheduled and dispatched out to personnel that go out and do the actual work at the well site, and then collecting that field ticket. So for us, you know, that's one of the flagship features of the product is, is writing up an electronic field ticket that can be signed by the company man, stamped if they so choose to do the stamp that we see so many times in the oil field. Yeah. And then from there, all the ancillary forms that go with it. So safety forms could be tailgate safety reports. It could be rig surveys, post-job surveys, all those kind of things. And doing all that offline at the well site, be it offshore or onshore, and then moving it back to our cloud servers, pushing it through a workflow, doing all the maintenance that goes along with the assets, and then generating the invoice and getting that eventually cut to the operator. And so the, the value that we're bringing is by digitizing all of those different processes and workflows, yeah. the value we're delivering is improved cash flow because we're going we're gonna to get the invoice out the door much faster and more accurately than you would if you were doing all this in a paper-based process. So it's, it's improving the cash flow at the end of the day, plus a whole litany of other benefits along with it. Yeah, no, I mean, any business manager out there, anyone for that matter who's, who's in working business development, I mean, everyone knows cash conversion cycles. The faster you can get the invoice out the door is just healthy for the business and its financial position. And so I mean, that, that obviously is, is tremendous value there. It's interesting because I feel like in talking to a lot of folks, especially after doing the podcast, there's a lot of companies and a lot of people trying to jump into this world. And it's, you know, if you, I would say, I don't know, probably more than half of the companies that I've seen start up in the last five years in the oil field have been all companies that help increase workflow and digitalize this and, and kind of, you know, I'm sure there's differences between companies, but a lot of the similarities to which you speak of, how do you see this space turning out? I mean, is there, more, is there, is there a lot of people entering the space that shouldn't be that are just trying to jump on the wagon or kind of what's your thought of, of this market of, yeah. of digitalizing and increasing workflow? Cause I feel like that's, I hear that all the time. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. And I see it from a couple different angles. I mean, when I started the business in 2005, there were really only about four players out there. 
and a couple of them were really more consulting companies. And now it's exactly what you say. You see a lot of different players entering the space. But what's interesting is as we go through these different cycles, these downturn cycles, you see a lot of them exiting. It becomes a reality to the, the reality of the oil field, the cycles that we go through oftentimes aren't super appealing to a lot of businesses, especially businesses that have investors behind them that may or may not be very familiar with those cycles and the historical financial impact that that brings. And so a lot of times I see some of those players kind of come and go. I mean, for us, we've been in the space now for 16 years. And if you include some of the consulting work prior, a lot longer. So we've seen these cycles. We know how to weather them. We're accustomed to them. But a lot of the other players that I see too in the workflow space, like you're saying, the difference between, let's say, where we are and where some of those players are is that we're focused really exclusively on the oil field. And so we bring a ton of domain experience to the table that's woven into the fabric of our product versus you look at a lot of the workflow management products that are out there. They're more, they're generic products. And it's not that they're not good products. They're great products, but right. they're a lot more generic. They're not fit for purpose like ah, okay. uh, field effects is. Interesting. Yeah, no, so I for think us, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I see the space maturing, at least for us, to even more domain specificity so that we can get field users adopted and using the product and delivering value to the customer faster. I mean, to me, that's that's where all this technology has gone. If you really zoom out and look at technology and software, it's gone from a very long, cumbersome process to a much more almost buffet style, quickly get it, consume it, ingest it, and and get value out of it type of type of market. And I, I think that you will see that continue along the curve. And and that's certainly where we're taking things with our product. I gotcha. So you guys have clearly evolved through time and, and have adapted to industry demands. I mean, how has the most recent downturn I mean, and and I say the most recent downturn, I would call 2014 to now one big long turn kind of. So, I mean, how have you adapted and and where has the opportunities amongst the chaos presented themselves or has there been, have you had to kind of pivot or, or, or how have you been able to withstand this, this most recent turmoil that we've been having for the last, you know, six years or so? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So we've stayed focused and I know a lot of businesses that serve the oil field have diversified or they've just totally exited. But for me, I've always been a huge proponent of the oil and gas industry and I am dedicated and committed to the oil field service providers specifically. I'm a huge proponent of them, a huge advocate for those guys. I mean, I know how hard it is, what they do out there in the field. So I mean, as far as as we're concerned, I mean, we've just remained very focused on it and have continued to see more take up and traction at the enterprise level. So the interesting thing during these downturns for us, we saw it in 1415, I saw it in 08 too, where a lot of times you you might look at a downturn and go, oh my goodness, you know, this is going to be terrible for us. But what it has done in a lot of cases is highlighted the need to do business more efficiently. Yeah, because you really you got to do more with less in these times. You got to be you're going to be leaner no matter what. And so you got to be more efficient and you can't have somebody churning through mounds of paper. You need them to be able to have electronic tools at their disposal and information that they can quickly get and not have to go call four or five people to go compile it together. So we've seen good traction at the enterprise level when these kind of things happen. And that kind of goes 
against what the normal thinking may be. But for us, it's difficult. I don't want people to think that it's not been challenging. It has been very challenging, and we will we will be hard-pressed to meet the same type of growth trajectory that we would project in a normal type of cycle. But it's definitely something that highlights the need to do something, especially at the enterprise. And a lot of times, they have the time to do it. Yeah. So when oil is 80 bucks, 100 bucks, they're a lot of times so busy that they're like, man, I, I can't roll this out right now. You know, I just got all hands on deck. We're just trying to take all the jobs we can do, and I just can't spare people. And so in these these types of cycles, you you have some bandwidth, and and we we tend to do better than you might think during those times. Awesome. No, that's great, and I love to hear that, especially like you said, the focus and commitment you have to to oil field services and and just the oil field in general. And I mean, heck, you made it through. You know, <laughs> you made it through. Yeah. Like you said, 08, you made it through 2014. I mean, and it's funny that, that do yeah. more with less. So I started out in the field and then in 2009 made it into the office and, you know, times were tough then. And our, our president and CEO at the time, he said that and it didn't really resonate because I was just, I was called what they call a well data technician. So I was sitting behind the computer and just, you know, doing tech work and you know, yeah, we got to, we got to find ways to do more with less. And And now I sit here you know, however many years later, almost 11, 11 years later. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. Like doing more with less. And and you should always be asking yourselves that. And like you said, you kind of get blinded by $80 oil because I find that when things are good, people, you know, you, you, you hire this person, you hire that person and you have all these luxury hires to where you're doing just as much. I mean, the volume of work is increased, but you're, you're adding people to, to help alleviate, you know, some of the, the pain, but essentially, like you said, going through these downturns and, and even the company I work for, I've seen it. I mean, 2014 and 15 sucked and we went through it, but we increased efficiencies. We, we managed to do more with less. And then now going into this downturn, we were so much better positioned to where the punch to the gut didn't quite hurt as much. And we were able to adapt a lot faster just by, you know, adopting some of the things that you're saying. So yeah, I don't, it's funny to say $80 oil. I don't know if we'll get there anytime soon. I mean, someone, actually that kind of brings me to another question. I mean, you've been in the industry long enough now and and you've obviously been, you've been tied to commodity prices indirectly. And so where do you see the U.S. I mean, demand? I mean, are you, Mm -hmm. two part question, where do you see U.S. demand? Do you think we'll ever see 13 million a day producing? And would you look to go international? Because I feel like the international markets, Yep. are going to continue to, I mean, the, 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 you know, you look at countries like China, Russia, India, well, China and India probably more so than anybody looking to increase their demand for energy over the, you know, next 25 years. Does that change your thoughts or like kind of what's your thought on all that? Yeah. So my thought on all that, I mean, right now, I think we'll end the year somewhere around 92, 93 million barrels a day on the consumption side of things. And, you know, we needed up closer to 100 million barrels a day to be back to pre-COVID, pre-pandemic type levels. And I think once we get there, then I think we could see U.S. production get back to the 13 million barrel a day Hmm. level. But I think the road to get there is going to be a very interesting one because the rig count is obviously at historic lows that I think we saw 264 last Friday. I mean, I'll be able yep. to see what Baker comes out with today on it. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if we pick up a couple more rigs. I think we picked up six last Friday, but it's wandering around. I mean, I used that term wandering around the desert earlier, but it, right now we're wandering around on the bottom with rig count, I think, in my opinion. So it's 
Yeah, I'm hopeful that it has found its floor. I certainly don't want to be a predictor of rig count, but it feels like it's found its floor. But I think once we see demand recover, consumption recover back to that close to 100 million barrel a day level, I think you could see U.S. production come back up. What will be interesting, though, is that, of course, timing. I mean, I don't think we could see that until end of next year. So that's that's a bit painful for sure, especially considering the low activity that it creates for the OFS companies out there. But the thing that's going to be fascinating for me is that you see a lot of these analysts out there talking about $60, $60 oil next year. And I could see a story for even higher only because if the rig count can't keep pace with, let's see, increased demand, I mean, that gap between consumption and supply, you saw it really widen in March, April timeframe, and you saw prices obviously collapse. I mean, it was a huge news story with all the craziness in the in the commodities market with, with oil. But, you know, could you see the same thing happen in reverse? Right. Like there's, a, there's a case to be made that the flip side could be true. If consumption comes back online faster than drilling activity can keep pace, yeah, then you know you could see some pretty astronomical prices. I mean, if you if you did, you don't have to go back too far in history to remember some pretty insane prices that hit the triple digits uh, yeah, for a while yeah. there. So I'm following it and and just a, a student of that side of the space and and very interested because it's it impacts our customers directly. 100%. I mean, the, the drilling activity just 100 percent, you know, 100 percent. So impacts them. I mean, there's a lot of ducks right now out there that can help our fracking companies out there for probably quite a while. But certainly the drilling activity we want to see come back online soon. Yeah, you make a good point domestically. But my question then, too, is if you look at OPEC, I mean, they have the ability to open the taps and fill that. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head with, you know, with how, how fast and, and at what, you know, how many millions of barrels per day they can add to the market. But I just wonder if, if they're ready for that and they're predicting it to where then they'll fill that gap and fill that spread quick to where the U.S. operators don't have time to bring that production online. And then we sit here suppressed at eight or nine million. But again, it's it's so tough to say. And I think there's there's still too much uncertainty with demand patterns right now that it's hard to tell. But you make a good point. And, and it's, it's, I always am interested on people's perspectives on that because yeah, you've got both sides of the world, you know, obviously competing and they want to keep prices up, but no one wants to give up market share. And so anyway, it's right. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a very interesting game, if you will. <laughs> so. It is. And it is a game and, and it is, it is a difficult game because the board is not totally level when you consider the fact that OPEC really is a, is a cartel at the end of the day and, and can set the prices accordingly. I mean, if you try to do that with U.S. companies, obviously the price collusion. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. that's another discussion. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. But yeah, but it's that's an interesting the thing. One. That, that's the wild card. The Middle East is the wild card. We'll see what they do with with production if they ramp it up. I mean, at some point, they kind of have to bring all that production back online just to generate the revenue that they're missing out on right now. I mean, to make that budget, uh, you know, whatever the $280 billion a year, I mean, they're, they're pretty short on that right now. Yeah. But if they bring that supply on, it's just going to drive the price down. So yeah, it's, it's a fascinating global dilemma right now that we'll be watching closely. Yeah, no, I think there'll be economics books written on just the last year alone. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, yeah. One last question I have for you on the, on the liquid framework side is, is where do you see the future for you guys then? I mean, are you looking to 
diversify? I mean, I know you said you're primarily focused on oil and gas, but I mean, are there other opportunities that you think might present themselves or like I said, overseas or, or kind of where do you see the next five years for you guys? Yeah. So overseas, that's, that's a good one to pick up on. I mean, we really are focused pretty much on North America. So Canada, we got some South American companies that are using our product and then heavy, heavy in the United States, obviously. But international is a great opportunity. I mean, expanding geographically is probably one of the most reasonable things that we could do right now. We just need a delivery arm from an international perspective. So yeah. we would need that implementation team to be go out, be able to go out and implement the product on an international basis, which is something that we partner with typically right now to be able to handle that type of thing. But there's the international expansion. We'll continue to expand our product. Our product is already pretty, pretty wide, as you, as you saw. I mean, it does a whole bunch, but we're no shortage of requests from customers as far as features and modules. So we'll continue to do that. There's also some adjacent markets that, that we'll look at. So when I say adjacent markets in the oil field, I'm specifically talking about going beyond the service providers and looking at things that we might be able to do from an operator perspective. So being able to do some workflow enablement for those guys as well. And then beyond adjacent markets, you know, there could be some acquisitions in the future that could take us into whole new products that we could take to the oil field that we think that could provide some nice growth strategy for us as well. But, but really, I mean, as far as future growth for us, there's a ton of future growth available just in the upstream oil and gas service provider market and the downstream service provider market that we serve today, you know, we could continue to grow at really nice double-digit growth rates, wow. just staying focused on that market with what we have today with our product. I mean, it, it's a great space. It's an underserved space. You know, historically, it's been an underserved space for technology, and it's because of the cyclicality of the commodity that backs it up. But, you know, mm. I love the space. It's, it's a great space. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so what would you say your biggest limiter is right now from further growth rate? Biggest limiter right now for us, I would say, is just kind of the uncertainty in the oil markets right now. I mean, things are on a really pretty pretty awesome trajectory for, for there for a while. But right now with the uncertainty, I would say there's still opportunity. We're still going to grow, but that uncertainty just injects some delays for us in, yeah. in a lot of cases. So customers want to see where things are going, you know, what are CapEx CapEx budgets going to do from the oil companies next year? And how's that going to drive activity on the drilling side of things? And and so for us, I mean, just, you know, we just need some certainty. And and for me, the certainty comes with a vaccine, I think, Ah, for the virus. So, you know, once there's a clear glide path to that, it, it seems like we'll start to see some pretty significant demand recovery, which will drive CapEx, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think a lot of people are in the, in the waiting period right now. No one wants to hurry up and wait, but I think yeah. strategically jumping in That's anything right. with the level of uncertainty, it's hard to it's hard to forecast anything, right? And so I think waiting, yeah. like you said, to see what globally happens and, and how, I mean, whether it's just, you know, kind of ironic timing that the election and then going into the flu season in winter. And so I think, Regardless, going into 2021, seeing how, you know, sort of the Q1 plays out and going into towards spring and summer will definitely allow people to then further put, you know, put some things in writing and, and actually commit for the next foreseeable future. So no, that, that makes total sense. Well, that's, that's great, man. I know we're coming up close to an hour being online here, but I do have a couple of questions to close out with and, and more on the personal side. And 
before we got recording, we were talking about, you know, you'd been to Canada and you have an appreciation for, you know, just the adventurous side of, of the West Coast. And so you're obviously adventurous, but I'm curious for you, when's the last time you've actually tried something for the very first time? I mean, you said you talked about rock climbing Ooh. and... And so, yeah, I mean, I'm curious, man, you seem like someone who's into doing a lot of stuff, but when's the very, when's the last time you did something for the first time? That's a good question for the first time. Let's see. I would probably say that would be this summer. I rented a kayak with my twins that are nine years old and we all got in a kayak and paddled down. It was low water flow. So it's not like it was anything dangerous. It was a sit on top. So it wasn't super dangerous, but we paddled down Boulder Creek in Colorado for uh, a number of miles. And that was, that was a pretty bumpy ride with two little kids going through rapids and whatnot. So that's probably the most recent new thing. The other thing I guess would be, this isn't very exciting, but I tried cold brewed coffee for the first time a few weeks ago. My best friend introduced me to it. Okay. And I tell you what, I was, I was super not, uh, it just sounds like a weird thing, cold coffee. <laughs> I mean, I got my coffee here right now. Yeah, it's yeah. hot, it's piping hot. But, nice. uh, it was delicious and I'll have some more. Okay. <laughs> have you tried nitro cold brew coffee? I, I've seen that one, but I haven't. This was, I think, Stoke Brew or something. Okay. Nitro and I want to try that. It's good. It's, it's definitely not one I could drink every morning, but it's nice. I mean, Canadians, I mean, I grew up, my mom and dad drank coffee before bed. So it's in my DNA to drink coffee <laughs> pretty much throughout the day. And then like in Canada, after supper time, like it would be common, like, hey, let's have a cup of coffee. And so I don't drink coffee past like two o'clock typically, just because I, I understand the, you know, the effects of caffeine and sleep. But however, nitro cold brew coffee is good. I'm a, I like anything coffee related, so, but good for you for trying the cold, you know, the cold brew. That's, uh, that's a yeah. good one. And definitely the kayaking. I'm sure your kids had a blast. They did. Yeah. We're big into outdoors, huge, huge into climbing and, and all kinds of backpacking and stuff like that. But that's kayaking, awesome. I, hadn't, I have not done a ton of, so it was fun stuff. There you go. Well, one last question I have is obviously, you know, you've been in the entrepreneur space for a long time. You're a busy CEO. I'm sure you're juggling a thousand different glass balls at one time, but is there anything that you do on a daily basis or do you have any habits that contribute to your success and just help keep you focused? And that's whether that's meditation, whether that's, you know, reading before bed, or or is there something that kind of like owns you in each day that you, as long as you do that, you kind of have the day on track? Yeah. So I'm super compulsive about being organized and tracking everything. So I literally write almost everything down, but I don't write anything down in paper because I feel like you just don't get any real value of it. It's not searchable, it's easily lost. It's not a transferable medium across different devices and whatnot. So I write everything down. I use Google Docs and I use Evernote. And I mean, when I say everything, I mean, I literally just take notes on every single thing. I track all my to-dos. I review them constantly. I review my annual goals and objectives from a personal and a company perspective at least weekly. So I go back, I mean, just at least read them and evaluate yourself against those. I write them every year in January. And then the other thing I do is I always review my calendar the night before and the morning of, make sure that nothing's popped up. But I just feel like writing everything down and actually using it, not just writing it down just to write it down, but but actually go and, and use it as a learning tool is a huge thing that I do. I mean, the other thing is just podcasts. I listen to a, a bunch of podcasts and just try and follow the market every single morning. I'm talking about the oil markets in yeah. particular. Excellent. Big student of the oil markets. Yeah, that's great. Oh, my son busted in here. So, but no, no you know, that that's really, that's interesting. Okay. 
hold on. <laughs> my wife's coming to get him. Just give me a sec. There you go. Mine might come in here too pretty soon. Yeah, he did good. He, he made it an hour or so. But my, my yeah. best wife here, she came and got him out for a sec. But anyway, that's working from home life, folks. That's as real as it gets. No <laughs> doubt. We're doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, no, I, I appreciate that. And I write things down, but I can honestly say I'm, I'm a paper guy. And even in school, I'm the type, I've got my binders and I've got my notebooks and my buddy's wife just finished her MBA and she, she has a tablet and she literally had every class, all her notes, everything on there. And I don't know why, but it like gives me anxiety trying to write on a, on a tablet. And so I'm a paper pen guy, but like you, so it's funny, I actually have a, an old notepad that I wrote down my goals back in 2009 and 2010. And I still have them. They've made it all the way from Calgary to Pittsburgh to Denver, now to Houston. And so, you know, and maybe it's, I'm like my mom. My mom still has a calendar that she writes in instead of using the electronic version. So, but, but writing things down and however it may, you know, however it works for, for the individual's mind, but uh, as long as you keep yourself accountable and keep yourself on track, however you get there is with the right way is the way that works for you. And so that's a really neat idea though, for, uh, for like you said, but man, it's been a pleasure. Is there any, are there any messages you'd like to relay to the audience before we close out here? Man, I would just say, you know, we're, we're just keeping our heads down and trying to plow through this pandemic and keep customers happy and love the content that you're providing out there. I've enjoyed listening to the historical podcast that you guys are doing. So yeah, you know, wish you more luck and great success in the future. Likewise, Travis. Well, hey, before we close out, I'd just like to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for March 2021. This month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, our OGGN Here and Now live event on March 4th at Churrasco's in the Memorial area of Houston, Texas, and the Texas Wildcatters Open at Black Horse Golf Club in Cypress, Texas. Next up, we have our three online events, Sarah Week from March 1st to 5th, Transformathon from March 1st to 7th, and the TAMU SBE Career Enhancement event on March 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for March. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Great. Yeah, Thank perfect. you. Oh, sorry. Yeah, perfect. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And again, Travis, thanks again for joining me today. What's the best way for people to reach out or to get to know more about your company? Yeah, best way to get to know more about Liquid Frameworks is go to the website, www.liquidframeworks.com. And you can always hit me up on Twitter at tparigi, T-P-A-R-I-G-I. Awesome. That's awesome. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I'll put the link in the show notes. That way people can click it, you know, just for ease. But anyway, that's a wrap for the audience. Appreciate all the support. And remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.